0: People can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone.
1: Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was
0: a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.
2: In the words of the trade-offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system. Just trade-offs. You can find trade-offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. Hello.
0: hello, hello, welcome. welcome.
2: <laughs> Science, and that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space,
0: time, the brain, life, the universe.
2: Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and this is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. And this week, we're asking, how long can someone hold their breath? And can you train for this? Who are fitter, footballers or rugby players? And what's the most intelligent insect? That's right, we're answering your science questions about science, technology and medicine. So if there's something you've always wondered about, this is your chance to scratch that scientific itch. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk Now with me to help answer the questions that you're sending us are from the University of York, behavioural scientist She works on insects, Eleanor Drinkwater. What have you been up to? You were telling me you've been...
3: Stung? Yeah. Well, yes. Well, I, I'm a very keen beekeeper, and I made the very rookie mistake of not zipping up my own bee suit the other day, and and I can tell you that that, that was bitterly regretted the next day. But it's, it's very much a, a mark of, of pride among beekeepers. Um. Well, no, you, you're
2: not a proper paid up beekeeper until you've had at least one anaphylaxis.
3: Well, hopefully no for anaphylaxis. That's that's a bad thing when that happens. But uh, you if you if you work with bees, you do occasionally get stung.
2: Yeah. yeah. How's it how's it going? The beekeeping?
3: Really, really good fun. We have an absolutely lovely queen in one of our hives at the moment. The other one's a bit more grumpy so so they're a bit more of a it, it's true
2: <laughs> my, my brother keeps <laughs> my brother keeps bees Eleanor and he says the same thing he said that yeah. as the queens get older yeah and also certain colonies just have yeah a particularly aggressive behavior yeah exactly And it's something to do with the queen squirting out pheromones yeah. that keeps everyone calm and yeah. as the queen ages she makes less of them
3: yes exactly that's that's it that's exactly it and the, and the character of, of the queen or, or you know the chemicals that she produces has a really big impact on on the behavior of all the other bees in in the colony so so yeah so So if you have a really nasty queen, then you can swap out for a really friendly queen, and suddenly the hive becomes a lot more friendly to work with. So it's really incredible. Uh, uh, Yes, some not as much as we were hoping, unfortunately, but uh, but yes, definitely enough to be getting on with.
2: (laughs) Eleanor, thank you. So any questions you have about insects, perhaps even bees, bee stings, and beekeeping, (laughs) ask Eleanor. Dan Gordon's also with us. Dan's an exercise physiologist. He's at Anglia Ruskin University. He's also a Paralympian and. It's got a world record. And there was a lot of coverage in recent weeks about athletes using sports
1: drinks and it not being terribly good for their dental health. Yeah, it came out about, I think, about 10 days ago. Quite a large-ranging study that was looking at elite athletes, and they reported that the, the dental health in elite athletes was was far, far worse than in the general population. Although the paper didn't fully attribute it to it, they, they one of the main conclusions was they thought it was down to the kind of sports drinks that are consumed. Which mostly these high carbohydrates, just because they're loaded with sugar. Loaded with sugar. Yeah. Yeah. How's your
2: dentition doing? Are you all right? well? I
1: think I, <laughs> I think I, I think I got away with it. Actually, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah.
2: What are they advocating that sports uh, practitioners do then? Just because you can't not have energy to do the uh, events. Uh,
1: no, and I think in the end, what they're really getting at, I suppose, is that there's got to be greater scrutiny of the health of the teeth in the athletes. I mean, you know, when I was competing, one of the things we had to do before we went to the Paralympics. We every athlete had to have a full dental check. Which sounds a crazy thing to do? You're going to Olympic Games. Actually, you wouldn't think that the teeth are that important, but actually, the worst thing you can have at an Olympic Games is, a is toothache. It's toothache. Ruin your day. And yeah. so, one of the things that's really being advocated now is that part of the athlete support program, part of lifestyle management, should be to actually monitor the the health of the of the teeth. Do so you think warning people there is this risk, they'll,
2: they'll probably take more care about washing their washing their mouth out to get rid of? I the think sugar, so. I
1: think yeah, more use of things like um, mouth rinses, cleaning the teeth more regularly, for example, as part. Part of the training routine so any questions about uh, exercise exercise physiology
2: how the body works sports and sports fitness dan's your man now next to dan is fran did you see what i did there <laughs> wonderful fran is a cambridge university physicist she is an astrophysicist cosmologist interested in how the universe at large works but you're also a stand-up comedian as well. yeah, how's that yeah, going that's right i'm um, not i'm not going to do the horrible thing because the minute you tell anyone you're a comedian <laughs> you say, oh go on then tell us a joke i won't do that yeah, but yeah, how, how is that going
0: It's going pretty well. I'm I'm writing a new show at the moment about kind of the philosophy of science and what we're really doing when we're doing science. So that has been a bit of a a step back from the day to day of my research. But is that are you
2: poking fun at it, or are you kind of making light of what life as a scientist and a researcher is like? Is that the the thrust of the show? I'm
0: poking fun at it, but there's also I think a serious a serious element of it, and I hope people will come away knowing a bit more about. You know, I've been told I'm participating in the scientific method, but I never really examined what that meant until now.
2: You're going to find out. You were also saying to me just before we started about the story that came out earlier this year, the first picture of a black hole, or rather the first impression of, of a black hole. And that's actually going to be made into a movie rather than just a bunch of static pictures now, you were saying.
0: Yeah, that's right. So you might remember the Event Horizon Telescope a few months ago published the first image of a black hole or more pedantically, the shadow of a black hole, I suppose. And then now they're going to do a full colour movie of the black hole, which is going to be really incredible. Both in terms of what it will teach us about astrophysics and general relativity, and also just it's just super cool. You can just, you'll be able to watch a black hole on YouTube.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or you could just watch uh, some tele programmes, which amount to much of the same thing, (laughs) (laughs) just no content visible whatsoever. (laughs) Thank you very much, Fran. So, anything to do with how the universe works and space, uh, anything like that. Please send those questions in, Fran, would be happy to consider those. Also with us, Bobby Seagull, who needs very little introduction. He's originally from Comers University, he's a mathematician and... Teaches maths, yes, taught teach exactly. kids maths, and actually you've been doing a tele programme with Eric Monkman, haven't you? Yes, going, so going around the country looking at inventions and things. Absolutely, how's er, that going?
4: Eric Monkman, for those who maybe need a reminder, is the University Challenge icon. He is the icon of icons. <laughs> I'm his friend. Well, you were pretty, <laughs> iconic. Yeah. but you were
2: you were pretty iconic on there as well. You're uh, quite
4: good. Thank you. That was very gregarious and outgoing. But we had a first series initially looking at a genius guy to Britain, so travelling around in a mini car. Imagine like Top Gear meets QI, but so of exploring all the curious bits of Britain. And the new series is called A Genius Guide to the Age of Invention. So Eric and I get back in our mini car, go around the UK, but this time it's quite chronological. So we're looking at from 1750 to 1900 and exploring Britain's discoveries and inventions in that period. Why did you pick that period?
2: Because it's a particularly golden period or was there some other reason?
4: I think it's the golden nature of that period because obviously if you look before that, it's sort of like Britain is still pre-enlightenment before Industrial Times and then in that period of 1750 to 900, lots of invention discoveries like chemistry has been discovered, physics, science, you know the word science, scientist comes into being, Darwin, Thompson, so lots of great figures of
2: science emerge. Any, any particularly standout moment? Because there, there always are when you're making programmes. there are always funny things that we never see on screen or, or other things that are just wow moments that you never thought you'd find yourself doing.
4: So one of my standout moments actually isn't a standout moment for me but is a standout moment for the show. So we... Uh, Visit the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and we get to hold one of the original cathode ray tubes that J.J. Thompson used. But I was too much of a chicken to hold it. (laughs) Genuinely, I was like, no, I can't. It's like, it's like, you, someone else's baby you can look at it admire it but if you want to hold it no 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 I don't want to hold it i take a selfie I'm not going to hold the
2: baby it'd be quite tempting to hold it and they go whoops because oh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> the same thing sort of happened to me because when I was in South Africa when I first went to South Africa I, went, I was at a conference and this big American guy came up to me at the conference and he said tomorrow I'm going to pick you up from your hotel and I'm going to take you somewhere and show you something that's going to change your life forever now of course I mean, you never met this guy you think that could, <laughs> that could mean a, a range of things and actually he took me to the University of the Around in Johannesburg, where he's professor of paleoanthropology. This is Lee Berger, who's now been on this program a number of times and has discovered not one, not two, but three new species of early human ancestor. And he had in this wooden box at the university, the face, the complete facial skeleton of the Tong child, which is the specimen, which is the, the, the Australopithecus Holotype. In other words, all of the Australopith specimens that we have, these are early human ancestors from maybe three million years ago or so. They're all compared to this one, which was discovered by Raymond Dart about 100 years ago now. And it's really fabulous. They've even got the endocast, the, the fossil remnant of the brain of this thing. And I was holding this thing in my hands. It's 3 million years old. And it's the only one in existence. And, and I did get tempted to go, whoops, like that. But, but Lee was very, very cautious. He had his hands under mine all the time. Because you think, how this is just crisis. But I know exactly what you mean. Uh, yeah. Now... For you at home and also for you guys in the studio, we've got a little guess who that we run through these sorts of programmes. We give you a sequence of clues across the show and uh, and as the show unfolds, we give you more of them. And the first one I've got here, it's, it's an animal. I'll give you that much. But can you work out what makes this particular sound? <laughs> OK, there you go. That was the sound it makes. Any clues? Mm, uh, you you want to hear it? Oh, they're, they're really fussy, this lot. They want to hear it again. OK. <laughs> Anyone got any ideas? It's not a seagull, I can tell you. No, it's not a Bobby seagull. No? Okay, more clues coming up. Eleanor, let's kick off with this one for you from Mariana.
3: What is the most intelligent insect?
2: Whoa, not bees, because, well, maybe they, they sting, <laughs> but uh, they stun you.
3: Well, Okay, so I have been asked this before and this is always a really hard question because I'm incredibly biased and I believe that all insects are incredibly intelligent in all sorts of different ways and and that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what insects can do. It could be the case that we haven't even discovered the cleverest insect, but... If I was to choose one based on research about an individual who's pretty clever, it might have to be the bees, I'm afraid. Um, so some really cool research has shown that bees can tell apart the difference between different painting styles. So if you show them a Monet and a Picasso, you can get them to learn the differences and then be able to generalise to other paintings. And also...
2: And which do they prefer, out of interest?
3: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that'd be a follow-up paper. I hope it would. Um, but also they can tell the difference between people's faces and they can remember a face for two days, which is incredible.
2: There was also a study that the researchers at Queen Mary University of London published a couple of years ago, where they showed a bee, another bee, rolling a ball into yeah. a goal, and yeah. the bee that was watching then learned how to get the bee, the yeah. bee ball into the into the bee goal and get a treat.
3: Yeah, it was so, so social learning. Yeah, and more than that they, they, they did a follow-on from that which was even more cool so trained it on on one particular ball and they had other balls in the area which they'd glued down um while they were learning but then in the in the second round they they unglued the balls and the bee would learn the concept and then would apply it to closer balls so then they would perform the same action but on a separate so they weren't just learning oh this ball goes in 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 the hole that they, they they could like generalize which is incredible if you think about it
2: anyone else got a favorite insect in the studio, everyone should. Ooh, everyone I, should. I, I, I have a the cicada oh i know why you're going to go Uh with that because they come out on prime number years don't they every 13 or 17 years cicadas emerge don't they they do to minimize the chances of their mating year coinciding with predators
4: exactly i always always tell my students that on a friday afternoon these cicadas are probably smarter than my students (laughs) on a friday two o'clock
2: maybe even smarter than the lecturer
1: you never know (laughs) there's a provocative thought dan a favorite insect i don't know i suppose possibly the butterfly just purely because i just love the whole the, the process from chrysalis to butterfly but actually just the sheer variety of butterflies yeah. i think it's just it's just mind boggling they also do
2: amazing feats of navigation the butterflies, The monarch yeah. butterflies, for example, all the way from Canada down to New Mexico, mm. and that kind of environs. I mean, it's thousands of miles. Yeah. Of these wow. tiny insects, mate, and they actually navigate. And they use their body yeah. clock and the position of the sun to navigate. And you think Goodness this is a tiny gracious. insect, and you know I can't even find my way <laughs> around London. <laughs> <laughs> and these things find their way. They're just an insect. I do find yeah. that quite amazing. Yeah, well, you shouldn't
3: say just an insect. You mean an insect. <laughs> Sorry, Eleanor.
2: <Wow>. Sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to insult you, Eleanor. <laughs> Now, Dan, one for you. Ben has got this question and would like you to help him out. He says, who is fitter,
1: rugby player or football player? Well, this is a loaded question, <laughs> isn't it? So oh, it. yeah. This is, I mean, this is one of those, it's a bit like the insect question. This is a classic question. And it's, I mean, it's, it's actually, without wanting to sit on the fence, it's, it's actually really difficult to say because you have to think what we mean by fitness. So actually a footballer is fit to play football. A rugby player is fit to play rugby. So I could sit on the fence and go, well, actually, we don't really know. Well, we know a little bit more. I mean, if we look at, say, basic cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory fitness, what's interesting is that they're pretty similar. So if we take what's called the VO2 max, maximum amount of oxygen that somebody can consume, the general population has a score of about 40 to 45 millilitres per kilogram per minute of oxygen. Um, male footballer is in the region of about fifty-five to fifty eight and a r- male rugby player is in a very, very similar region. Where it gets quite fascinating is is when you look at things like distances covered. So the distance is covered in a game of football, a midfielders running about eleven to fourteen kilometres. Referees are actually running more, which is just a side issue. In rugby, actually again it's positional dependent. So if you're playing as the a forward, then clearly you're not going to run as as much as, for example, a, a midfielder. But when you get into things like measures of strength Now we start to see the difference. Clearly, rugby players are able to exert more force per unit of mass. Are they more powerful? Again, it depends on the position that you're playing. So it is a slightly loaded question. So if you you were going to compare them on the old classic TV show, if you remember Superstars, I mean, I used to love Superstars, and you compared them, actually, it was interesting that rugby players never used to do as well on Superstars compared to footballers. And the aim of that program was that you always compared people across different sports that took them out of their own events. And so going back to that era when we had superstars, then one might argue tentatively than
3: yes.
1: is, is a footballer, it's it's going to be a question but, of sort of horses for courses, isn't it? Because if you took a rugby player, they're not going to be
2: very good at the pole vault, no. are they? Let's no, be honest. But then a pole that. vaulter is not going to be very good at rugby.
1: Exactly that. You know, I mean, I always say to my students who's fitter, a sumo wrestler or a marathon runner. Of course, they go marathon runner. And you go, yeah, but no,
3: <laughs> but
1: because you know there is there, there is then they're, they're just not. They they they're fit for running a marathon, but they are not fit to be a sumo wrestler. And actually, you start getting down to genetics. So actually, you know, th- there is no way you're ever going to take a footballer and turn a footballer into a prop forward. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. You know, they don't have the genetics for building muscle mass. They don't have the genetics for force generation. And the flip side is, is the same for football. In football, there's a lot of this work to do with what we call stretch shortening cycle, which is this idea of, of fast force production. Rugby players don't have that kind of fast force production as a football player. So there, you have got that large genetic component as well. Dan,
2: thank you very much for that. So I think we're basically going to have to sit on the fence with that one. (laughs) Bobby, over to you. Dee is uh, pondering about pi, and this is the the mathematical pi rather than fruitcake or anything (laughs) like that. She says...
3: Does pi really go on forever?
2: What she's referring to is the fact that although we often write 3.14159, etc., actually, if you kept on calculating 22 over 7, would it go on forever? Is that how pi works?
4: Yeah, so people have historically tried to come up with an answer, what is pi? So I think Archimedes used geometry to do, I think, a 96-sided shape inside a circle and outside and try to come up with an approximation. And then in the 1700s, a mathematician called Lambert proved it's irrational. So you can't write... Uh, pi as a ratio of two whole numbers and then in the 1880s a mathematician proved it's transcendental showing that actually you can't determine its exact value so actually it does go on forever and never repeats and one of the cool things about pi is technically all of our birthdays are there all our (laughs) date of death all our our date of engagement our favorite number our recipe our sort of our favorite mathematical recipes for cakes everything is inside pi because it goes on forever.
2: So if you give enough monkeys, <laughs> enough calculators, eventually they'll reproduce pie exactly <laughs> so yeah. the
0: monkeys will always be reproducing a part of pi right they are, whatever they, they type yeah. very intelligent really
3: if one of your students writes down the wrong number for, for, for pi then i guess they could always claim they could that claim they've,
4: they've they got could. Don't, don't. i hope none of my students are listening to this really.
2: but more seriously for a second bobby what actually is pi used for and how is it derived how did they actually get to this magic number which which is incredibly powerful
4: So pi essentially is the ratio between the circumference and diameter of a circle. So no matter how small or big a circle, that is approximately, again, roughly just three times, a bit larger than three times. And in school, we've seen people use approximation 22 over 7. That's 3.142857 recurring or 3.14. But again, that ratio... It, it's it never ends, and we use it for I guess in in, in physics, uh, in areas, and in, in real life. But it's something which I think mathematicians currently. There's one mathematician, a computer science in Japan, that I think earlier in 2019 used 25 computers over 121 days and came up with 31 trillion digits to pi. Again, but still... And and is this
2: really useful? Because don't NASA, just for the purposes of their calculations, stop at something like five or seven decimal places? They're they're satisfied that that's good enough.
4: Yes, and I think I've read somewhere that with 32 digits of pi... You can then estimate the size of the universe to like one proton's width. So actually, you is that don't right, need... Fran? Just put you on the spot there. So we don't need thirty-one trillion digits. I'm sorry for the person who set yeah. that the world record.
2: Right <laughs> so there you go. D. The answer is yes. Pi it does go on forever, and if you look hard enough, you're going to find your birthday in there. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called
3: Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. If you have a hit, if you make a first game and it it hits, it's incredibly hard to recreate that in the second game.
2: Reviews is it wrong to give a game zero out of ten? Feels... Oh, I love it
0: go for it ok
2: I'm just going to go hard in here zero out of ten don't waste your money
0: oh,
2: and we also go back in time with Retro Revival
0: I think I'm a hypocrite because last time I'm like oh well they just made the same game again and that's bad but this time I'm like nah it's pretty good I'm <laughs> happy with that make the same game <laughs> make
2: it again download it now wherever you get your podcasts On the way, does playing a clarinet or other woodwind instruments change your lung shape? How do bees make beeswax? And what's inside a quark? If you're a Trekkie, you'll be familiar with the word quark. Dan's looking at me because he's a Trekkie. But, uh, oh, and Bobby. Bobby's a Trekkie. Honorary Trekkie as well. Uh, the quark character was just a person, but they named him after the fact there are subatomic particles, these things that make up the bits inside atoms. And this question wants to know what's inside one of those meanwhile don't forget we've got a guess who game going we're giving you a series of clues across the program you have to try and identify what this thing is bavish got on twitter and said this sounds like a bear i'll just remind you what this thing sounds like more clues coming up but mark says is that a hedgehog which i know is one of Eleanor's <laughs> favorite things liam on twitter says that sounds like a horse Anybody here like to speculate? I'd go with a horse.
3: Yeah, horse. yeah it sounds well, like a horse. Well, it's not a horse. D- yeah, well, I, I I would say horse, but I know this radio show, so it's going to be something really oh. weird. Could it be okay. a hippopotamus? Uh. Oh.
2: Fran's going hippo. That's nice. Second clue is they stand, on average, at just over 100 centimetres at the shoulder, although this does vary between breeds. Does that uh, revise your thinking at all, everybody? Anyone got any... Further speculation. We're all trying to.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's
2: got their arm up. To... How tall is a meter? Right. Okay. So anyway, more clues coming up. Meanwhile, Bobby, Bobby Seagull's with us. You've got a book sitting there on the top. Is this it? Is this the new, the new yes, tome the, you've the, just put the, out? The
4: life-changing magic of numbers. When's it out? So it's it is out. Just this come out. September. Yeah, that's right. Brilliant. And what's it about? So it's partly autobiographical, but it's partly an ode to numbers, because I know that as a maths teacher, if I go into sort of a dinner party or meet friends at a pub and say, uh, you know, I love maths, I'm a maths teacher, pretty much the first reaction from most people, not all people, not the esteemed audience here or our listeners, our dear listeners, they'll be like, oh God, maths, I hated it. I couldn't do it at school. What's the point of it? And my book is almost like a soft manifesto showing actually maths is quite cool, quite fun and appears in unexpected places.
2: All right, you've got one minute to convince us that maths is quite cool, quite fun and appears in unexpected places. Take it away.
4: Okay, the so unexpected place is in dating. I am currently single, and I am trying to use maths to help me to be unsingle. That's not a good opening line, no, is it's it? Not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because of maths. Separate, not causation. So, firstly, I used a uh, adapted version of Drake's um, hypothesis to estimate the number of alien civilizations in our galaxy. And again, you, you want to date an alien? You're getting
2: really, <laughs> I know, really desperate now, Bobby. Okay.
4: So, again, okay, initially, I've used a, a hypothesis from Drake and, and come up with my own version. And I have worked out there's 73 people I could
2: date in the UK. That that doesn't sound good. But the more hang, on, pos- hang on a minute. There's, so there's 65 million people in the UK and there are just 75 that suit your parameters. I mean, yeah. how, how stringent are you being? Yeah,
4: I think it's perhaps because I'm someone that likes Verdi, but Stormzy, but Bake Off, but Love Island. So I've got my own issues. But that's separate. So the, the, the interesting part is I use something called optimal stopping theory to work out how many dates I need to go on. And How many? Is it within a lifetime? Is this in terrible? How? So imagine I say I want to get married in five years. And I'm prepared to go on two dates a week for 50 weeks. That's 100 dates. And over five years, 500. So actually, optimal stopping theory, uh, you know E from the exponential. So one over E gives us roughly 37%. And optimal stopping theory says I need to go on 37% of my total 500 dates. That's 185 dates. And I can't accept any of them. I have to reject all of them, no matter if they love Bake Off and Love Island and Universe Challenge. And then the person after the 185th date that's better than all the previous ones, she's the one. Obviously, she has to accept as well. That sounds
2: like a fallacy, though, because the, 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 there's an equal chance that the first date you go on will will be your dream lifetime partner. Surely, compared with the person who's one after the 37.5th person percentage.
4: But we point. again, we don't know. The the person could turn up as the first or the second or the third. Well, that's what the, I'm saying. So how do you? Why but, are you saying you want
2: to go with the one straight after? Again,
4: the, I, I probably need a pen and paper. But one over e, one over two point seven two. Turns out to be in any sort of decision where, let's say, you want to buy a house, and you're trying, to, and you've got a hundred houses you want to look at, or you want to buy a pair of shoes, it tells you that. Roughly about a third of the way through, you need to discard the first third, or 37%, and then mm. after that,
2: mathematically, you should get the best solution. And how far through your 185 dates are you? About nine. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a long way to go. Do. Okay, so you, you've convinced me that um, you can overthink things. Um, what, what, what's the, the next fun and um, fantastic fact that we can learn about in the book?
4: Ooh, fantastic! Comes back to sh- cicadas, because again, my students we were learning about prime numbers recently, and they often say, "Oh, sir, but Mrs. Seagull, prime numbers—you only really use them in exam. I never see them anywhere in nature." And then we brought up when you mentioned what's the most intelligent insect, and I always love telling my my students about the cicadas, yeah. and these are little tiny creatures. They're apparently very tasty, and it's only because I've seen them in a documentary, and the de toy says they are tasty, so I take his word. But again, the fact that they've evolutionarily developed the fact that emerging in 7, 13 or 17 year cycles evades predators. I think that's amazing because had they picked 12, let's say, then any predator that emerges every two, three, four or six years will eventually overlap with it. And that for me is amazing, shows that actually mathematics is something that not just humans practice, but insects
2: Sounds like a slightly dodgy argument though, Bobby, because the thing is nature's very good at finding an opportunity. Um, Maybe you can prop me up on this one, Eleanor. But the fact is if the cicadas have evolved to do that, then surely things that like lunching on cicadas would have evolved convergently to do the same thing, wouldn't they? Why why haven't they?
3: It's a a really good question and one to which I would love to know the answer. But I I don't know of any predators who who follow this this pattern. I guess in, in this particular case you'd have to have a predator who was, like, specialised in eating cicadas. So I'm guessing that they are banking on the fact that you get a lot of generalist predators who wouldn't bother to, to, to adapt specifically to eat them. But you never know, they might catch up one day.
4: <laughs> I think he sort of nailed it on the head there, because an entomologist called Stephen Jay Gould, he said that potential predators often have shorter life cycles, two to five years, so they can't really stretch and keep up with the the ones who are... Greedy enough to stay for 13 or 17 years,
2: Bobby. It sounds like a terrific book. Remind me of the title again. It's called The Life Changing Magic of Numbers. So there you go, Bobby's book out and, now. And the the life changing. You know, and he's going to send me a signed copy, uh, that, and, and then I'll know exactly how many more dates I don't need to go on. And you, you have to, <laughs> when you come back on the program, you can update us. And tell, us tell us how you're getting on, Bobby. Eleanor, we've just been talking about creepy crawlies and cicadas. Can you help out uh, Jay on our forum, nakedscientistscom forum? He says, who's better at climbing? Is it spiders or geckos? And why don't spiders get stuck on their own webs?
3: I absolutely loved researching this question thank you very very much for sending in I spent a lot of time uh, looking up this uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled to say that it's spiders that are better climbers than uh, geckos uh, fascinatingly they use a very similar mechanism to stick to stuff and it's due to tiny 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 hairs in their fingers which
2: fingers? spiders yeah, have fingers now <laughs>
3: well yeah feet, pads, <laughs> toes legs, legs. <laughs> you know <laughs> spidery things um, but yeah tiny 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 hairs which interact with the surfaces that they stick to in a molecular manner so they're actually held on by van der Waals forces and so if like me you've spent quite a lot of time looking up the different, you can find out how sticky these animals are to the different surfaces and then divide them by the body weight of the animal if you compare a jumping spider to a toke gecko you'll find that actually the jumping spider is three times more sticky than the gecko
2: and just to be clear the way they stick on is that their feet fingers, feet as you, fingers. whatever you want to dub them <laughs> have tiny hairs and those hairs get very close to the thing they're trying to climb onto. And and the electrical attractions between those tiny hair surfaces and the thing they're trying to climb on gives them enormous sticking power.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. So uh, why
2: don't they stick to their own web then? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, one theory I did hear is that those hairs are very spiky. And Mm. so the droplets on the web are the sticky bits. If Mm. you look at a web, it's got, regularly, it's got blobs of sticky stuff. And the spider, A, knows where they are, so it puts its feet somewhere else, and B... The hairs are quite sharp, and so the blobs tend to go towards the end like falling off a needle, and so they easily detach. Whereas, an insect, other insects that are the prey, Mm -hmm. get stuck in them because they have big juicy hairs yeah. that, that are less easy to disengage so yeah. they just get stuck and other bits of the insect body get stuck as well so the spider's <laughs> canny it knows a to use its feet and where to put its feet and <laughs> to have hairy feet that are hairy with sharp hairs so the spider can attach easily
3: they're just they're just incredible How, however the the, the the stickiness thing that comes with a caveat it, it depends on the gecko and depends on the on the spider you get some geckos and some spiders that are more or less sticky than others
2: they're still amazing though, aren't they? <laughs> thank you very much Fran this is from Susan And I must admit I'm intrigued to hear what you're going to say about this because uh, Susan says normally the answer for what are electrons, protons and neutrons made of is quarks. But if that's the case, then what are quarks made of? All elements are supposed to be made of atoms. That's why you say don't believe anything an atom says because they make up everything. Uh, Quarks are the building blocks of atoms, so they can't be made of atoms. So what are quarks made of?
0: Okay, so there's a lot going on in this question. It's uh, a very good question that's been puzzling physicists. Firstly, just a few pedantic points. Electrons aren't made of quarks. Only protons and neutrons are made of quarks. Um, And when we say elements are made of atoms, we're talking about chemical elements. So things like oxygen, hydrogen, potassium, not subatomic particles like quarks. Quarks are, of course, not made of atoms. Um, As you point out, that would be kind of circular. So electrons and quarks are what we call fundamental particles. And this means that so far, however much energy we've thrown at them, we've collided them with each other with as much energy as we can in particle colliders. And they've never broken into smaller parts. There's never been any evidence that they're made up of anything at all. Now, it might be that if we just put in more energy, they will break apart and then we'll find out what they're made of. Or it might be that they're truly fundamental, that they're not made of anything. One thing that helps to understand how this can be, how there can be something that isn't made of anything, is to think about quantum field theory, um, which is really the most fundamental theory we have about how the universe works. Quantum field theory asks the question, you know, what is an electron really? And the answer to that question is that an electron is a kind of ripple in the electron field this entity that covers all of space and time it's the same for every other particle we think that what we call particles are ripples or waves in fields that have spanned the universe since the Big Bang it's like ripples on a pond and these fields are really the fundamental objects of the universe not the particles and anything more than that what are the fields made of well that we don't know
2: so when we pick up a, an oxygen atom there's stuff in there which you're saying happens to be in that space is is a bunch of ripples that yes. are in that particular point in space and time yes ripples in in the fabric of space yes so when i move that atom i'm i'm moving those ripples around so the the ripples are a distortion but they can move
0: yeah so one thing to uh Clarify is that these quantum fields, a field allocates a number to every point in space. So, like the electric field would have a value everywhere. It's not the fabric of space time in the sense that we talk about when we talk about gravity. So, these are fields that cover space, but when there's a ripple, we don't see it gravitationally in the same way that, say, a black hole causes space to bend.
2: So could these things be sitting in some other bizarre dimension that we see it in the dimensions that that we're familiar with interacting with, but there are other dimensions that we can't so they're hidden from us let's say, and that's where actually the thing that gives the the quark its existence is sitting, and actually the vibrations or the repercussions of that are manifest as these ripples that we see as a part of an oxygen atom here on on earth right now, but actually it's it's some other entity in some other dimension that we we just don't know it's there.
0: There are theories that postulate extra dimensions, in particular to explain why gravity is so weak because it's acting over more dimensions, but we just don't know. When these quantum particles that are described as ripples interact with each other, you can think of it a bit as when you have ripples travelling along in water, they can interact with each other. When I pick up an atom and move it, you know, remember that my hand is also basically a ripple. So that's just the ripple that is my hand interacting with the ripple that is the the oxygen atom.
2: So is just ploughing more and more energy into more and more exotic uh, collisions, just not really the best way to go with this, because we're not actually going to discover, because that's not the way to unlock what Hmm. lies downstream of these particles?
0: It's possible. And we are trying lots of different approaches. So My research in particular is using astrophysical observations to look at really all kinds of different extreme environments to try and learn more about particle physics. But I do think there's an awful lot of value in just building a bigger particle collider. Smashing stuff together with increasing energy has worked for scientists for many centuries and I don't see a reason to stop now.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast
1: is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower
2: your company at spitfire.co.uk.
0: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions.
2: With me are a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions. They are animal behavior boffin Eleanor Drinkwater, physics fanatic Fran Day, exercise expert Dan Gordon, and numbers nut Bobby Siegel. If you'd like to ask a question on a program like this, why not tweet at Naked Scientists? Or you can email us. It's Chris at the Don't forget, we're running our Guess Who, where you have to work out what the mystery animal is. It's running across the program. So far, we heard the noise that it makes. It sounds like this. <laughs> I also told you they stand roughly 100 centimetres tall at the shoulder. And your third clue is a female of one of these is called a jennet. A female of one of these is a jennet. Anyone any the wiser yet?
0: No. (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Our our experts are baffled. So stay tuned. Coming up is your final clue. While you think about the questions and have a think about what else uh, our guests who might be, it's going to be quiz time. And this is where we ask our panel of experts some other harder questions to see how they fare. We've got two teams. Team one are going to be Fran and Dan, and team two are going to be Bobby and Eleanor, and round one is called Around the World. So please confer you two, Fran and Dan, team one, which of the following mega cities, referred to as cities of more than 10 million people, has the biggest population? Karachi, Moscow, or Istanbul?
0: I just don't know. Do you know?
1: <laughs> I, I, well, um, I don't I would take a guess at Karachi.
0: Yeah, that sounds plausible. I'll just go with that. You're going Karachi? Yeah. Yes.
3: Yep, ah. that
2: is correct. Karachi's yeah. got 18... Oh, I... I don't, I, Bobby sounds so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I, They're I was gonna... not expecting Istanbul. I oh, is what... that... ah, no. Karachi's got 18 million people. Istanbul's snapping at its heels, though. 14.5 million. Mm. And Moscow, just over 13. London, though, way down the list, nearer 9 million. Team two, Eleanor and Bobby. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, which is the biggest? You have to listen to these carefully. The smallest country in the world, the smallest republic in the world, or the smallest colony in the world?
4: It's the smallest country, smallest republic, smallest colony. Well, the smallest country is the Vatican. It's about
3: 0.44. Yes, I kilometers. would, yeah.
4: It's the smallest republic and the smallest...
3: Well, I'd say the smallest colony would probably be a colony of ants, probably, but... Okay. <laughs> If that's not the answer. Colony. I'm going to be very disappointed. So, which is the largest of the three? Smallest republic? What is a republic?
4: We're into quite political terms. Yeah. Are we a republic yet? No, we're not.
3: Yeah. Oof, I
4: don't know. Gonna um, have yep. to
2: hurry you.
3: I'm, go- I'm going to go for a colony because if we, if Good. it is the animal route, which I'm obviously predisposed to think that. it is, then then you can talk about super colonies and they can stretch across huge distances. Let,
2: let's go for that. Again. Yeah, do you know? I think I would be tempted to give you a bonus for really clever thinking. Okay, Thank you. it's <laughs> not—it's not actually right. Um. I'm—I'm I'm gonna have to give you a. Oh, um, I'm sorry. But, but I'm I thought sorry. it was ingenious thinking, so I'll give you half a point for Yay. that. Because, um, and actually, some of those mega colonies of ants, though, Eleanor, are mm. huge, though, aren't mm. they? Which makes them bigger than. In fact, probably Vatican City which is tiny, that's just 0.44 square kilometers and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure there are ant mega colonies which span a bigger area than that. Definitely. But the answer to the quiz question is the smallest republic is Nauru, which is in the Pacific Ocean, mm. 21 square kilometers. Smallest colony? Anyone? Any ideas? Gibraltar. Oh. It's uh, 5.8 square kilometers on that one. Mm. Okay, so we've got uh, you're just about in the lead Fran and Dan with a uh, half a point in it. Uh, Next round, round two. Tech yes or tech no? Which of the following is a tech no? In other words, which one did we make up?
3: Okay, oh, of these three. Right. A
2: bed that tucks you in at night, a frying pan that counts calories in your dinner, or a games console for your pet pooch? Which one okay. is a tech no? Oh,
1: man, they all sound like they could be made up.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the dog games console, if that doesn't exist, then I'm going to it. Gonna make yeah. it. So, yeah. Um, a bed that tucks I've you in. I've seen the bed that
1: tucks you in. Oh, really? I'm pretty Isn't sure I've it seen kind that. of
0: dangerous? And I'm pretty sure I've seen something <laughs> on, on, on
1: Facebook that, that, that does this. Facebook so shows So these
0: gravity blankets that are just really heavy.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I've seen something which is designed yeah. for people who are disabled. It, 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 in essence, I don't know how it works. I seem to remember seeing something that it, the sheets are able, and the blankets are able to pull themselves.
0: Right. Across. So how would the frying pan thing work, though? Because the way I know to see how many calories are in something is to burn it. Then
2: you wouldn't yeah. have Most, any dinner, so,
0: so that's so, not so, ideal. we talked to ourselves into it? Is, should we go with the frying pan? Yeah, let's go with the frying, the frying pan. pan. You're going, techno is the
2: frying pan. Yeah. Oh, oh. no. No, actually, it, it is the bed. It is the bed. The, the bed is the techno. The frying pan comes with its own app and a built-in scale, so it can weigh and then quantify right. how many calories oh, you're right. allegedly going to get. The games console, um, the idea of that is that your dog does a little puzzle and it gets a treat in return for its labours so unfortunately no points for that one so um currently the scores stand at one point to Dan and Fran half a point to Eleanor and Bobby your chance to take the lead here Eleanor and Bobby uh same question which of the following is a tech no a mask for your mouth to stop you annoying everyone around you having loud phone conversations a phone soap or smart hair bobbles they tell you when they're about to snap before your hairdo collapses A mask for your mouth. Uh,
3: Yeah, but but also the hair bubbles thing. Like, I mean, if if you're wearing it in, in your hair, then if it's about to snap, then you wouldn't be able to tell because it would be in your hair.
4: So it sounds ludicrous, you think?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, as someone who wears hair bubbles, I, you know, I think this is a... This sounds not very useful. But then again, just because it's not very useful doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the mask
2: What are you going to your... go for then? So hair bubble sounds...
3: Yeah, but then again, the mask for your mouth sounds bizarre as well. I want to invent that.
2: That sounds... <laughs> so go for the hair bubbles.
3: OK, we can go the hair bubbles.
2: You're going to go hair bubbles? Yeah. yeah. going to go hair bubbles? Yeah. It is... Yay! <laughs> <laughs> right. So one and a half points <clears throat> to uh eleanor and bobby so far so they're half a point ahead it could all be on this one here we go okay round three this is potentially the decider this round is called on the other foot this is where we ask the team something about something that the other team probably know quite a bit about and so you have to keep very quiet the team and, and then you can gloat when they do or don't get it right so fran and dan according to wikipedia which of these is the smallest mammal the bumblebee bat, which is a vulnerable bat species with a reddish brown or grey coat and a pig-like snout. The Etruscan shrew, which looks a bit like a mouse but has an elongated nose and eats mainly insects. Or the long-tailed planigale, which is a small marsupial, also like, looks a bit like a mouse, has a flattened head and it can get through very narrow cracks. What do you think? Mm. They all sound small.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of the above. Well, yeah. uh, the last one must be quite small to get through very narrow cracks. But then
2: mice <laughs> in, is, in the, is, the description.
0: Mu- <laughs> yeah.
1: But you said that the shrew was apparently mouse size as well.
0: Oh. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's the bat. Maybe it's maybe the, maybe it's the some bat. Because it's called the bumblebee bat. And bumblebees <laughs> are smaller <Yeah>. than mice. <laughs> Should we, we just do it? Okay, we think it's the bat. Yeah.
2: You're going to go with the bat? Yeah. Oh yeah! yeah.
1: yeah. Hot <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well,
2: Eleanor and Bobby, what's the diameter of a neutron star? Is it twenty kilometers, twenty thousand kilometers, or twenty million kilometers across?
3: Oh. Neutron stars
4: presumably quite small.
3: I have no clue. So
4: twenty twenty thousand, or was a lot less than twenty million?
3: Yeah. Twenty
4: kilometers sounds too. That sounds like more black hole-y. How about twenty
3: thousand? I I yes, <laughs> I agree. Twenty
2: the middle option. <laughs> Going middle for twenty thousand. Yeah.
0: No!
2: No. Did, did you know that, Fran?
0: Yeah, it's 20 kilometres. It oh, is really 20 kilometres, <gasps> Oh, my yeah. God, I get the yep. oh, oh, Neutron
2: man. stars are actually very small. They're actually roughly the size of a city in terms of <laughs> diameter, and a teaspoonful of one would weigh about 10 million tonnes. Wow. Our own sun, in comparison, 1.4 million kilometres in diameter. Wow, so there you amazing. go. Our Big Brain winners of the week are Dan and Fran. Give yourselves a big round of applause. Very well done. <laughs> Dan, back to the questions. Uh, Are are you
1: musical, by the way? Uh, Well, if you ask my wife, I am absolutely tone deaf. (laughs) That's a no
2: no, no from her then. Um, We've got this question that uh, has come in from Bruce. Does the form or function of a wind instrument player's lungs
1: differ from the norm? This is actually a really interesting question. The answer is no. and I think that's quite surprising. So there's been a number of studies that have been been done, where they've compared using different methods. I mean, the classic method is just using measures of respiratory function. So looking at total lung capacities, measuring things like fractional extraction. So you measure the amount of air that's extracted in one one second, for example. Um, Looking at residual volume. So we all have residual volume. If you don't have residual volume, the lung collapses. So they've measured all of these. And actually what they have found is when you compare a wind instrument player to a non-instrument player, there is no difference in any of these measures at all what is different of course is the way in which the lungs are used um there are differences for example in the strength of the of the diaphragm um there are are differences in the way in which the lung is filled but the thing i found really fascinating about this which actually when i sat down and thought about it I thought it actually makes an awful lot of sense is the wind instrument players actually have a lot of inflammation in the lung and actually they have a lot of lung damage and actually, if you put it into the context and you think about it really logically, it's the same as you'd see in any, I'm going to spin it to athletes, aren't I? It's the same as you'd see in an athlete. If you are doing vast amounts of repeat work where you're stressing something to its maximum, you cause inflammatory responses. And so what they're finding in these wind instrument players is actually if you measure their, their lung function on a scale, it looks worse <laughs> than the general population because they've just caused these inflammatory responses. Thanks very much, Dan. Fran, one for you. This is
2: from Martin, who's contacted us on Facebook.
1: What I don't understand is that I hear that we can detect radiation, background radiation, that apparently emanates from the Big Bang. So how is this possible? Electron magnetic radiation moves at the speed of light. So if we, the Earth, were created atomically from the Big Bang and we took billions of years to form, to to make the Earth that we are now, surely all the radiation that came at the Big Bang is is long gone, it's long ahead of us. The only explanation I can work out is that the radiation bounces around until it's detected, But, but then it could have come from anywhere. And if it bounces from the edge of the universe, then where's that?
0: I think what's being referred to here is the cosmic microwave background. This is radiation that was produced 400,000 years after the Big Bang, but in in cosmic timescales, that's nothing. And it was produced at a time in the universe when electrons and protons were combining to make neutral hydrogen, and that produces all of these photons. And this happened everywhere in the universe at once. So it didn't just happen at a point, it happened across the universe. Now, since that time, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding. So this radiation, these photons have just been travelling through the universe as it expanded, and the effect that that has is to stretch them. So the effect of the expansion of the universe is that we see the radiation, the light, from the cosmic microwave background as having a longer wavelength. But because the universe is expanding, everything just expands in that together. So the radiation is everywhere in the universe. And the stuff that we see is the stuff that just happens to be where you are, but it's just travelling through this ever expanding universe.
2: One argument I heard for this that put it, I thought, quite well, and you can tell me, Fran, the point that was made is that for something to be sending us radiation like this from all directions, Mm -hmm. argues that the stuff which is across the universe must have at some time all been together in one place and shared the energy of the big bang equally amongst all those particles so that when the universe then inflated very very fast which it did far faster than light Mm -hmm. and everything else in the very early phases of the universe it took all those bits with it that had shared all that energy and now they are busy radiating that energy in all directions at us and as you say because the universe is also inflated it stretched the light out so we see this stuff at very long yeah. Wavelengths. But it's coming at us from all directions because the material that it was all part of in the very early universe is now everywhere. And so yeah. it's now sending us radiation whichever way we look.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's really why the the cosmic microwave background is very, very uniform in all directions which is quite surprising because it's spread across the whole universe. And this is one of the reasons we think we need this period of inflation where the universe expanded very, very quickly at the start of the universe so that it can all have been together at one stage.
2: We're answering the science questions that you have been sending in. Before we get to more of the questions, it's time for another of the clues for our guess who... Two people who've now got uh, very, very close to the thing that sounds, remember, like... (coughs) Sounds like that. A metre at the shoulder, female is called a jennet, or a jenny. I kept that back because I thought that would give too much away. Uh, A gelding is the term for the male that's had its bits removed. Final clue, they've also been bred with other members of the equity family. A hinny, for instance, is a cross between one of these and a male horse, uh, a female one of those and a male horse, for example. So anyone got any ideas what it might be?
3: I have. I would say,
2: could it be a donkey? Yep, you're absolutely right, um, Eleanor. Yes! It was, it's a, it, it's a donkey. So Ed on Twitter, well done. And also Les, you both said donkey. So very well done to you. Now, Eleanor, over to you. And uh, Blake's tiger on our forum says, bees make honey, but where does the wax come from?
3: Oh, it's pretty adorable. Um, so, so it also comes from the bees. So it's the youngest bees in the hive. Essentially what they do is they huddle together. They raise their body temperatures and then they start producing little tiny drops of wax from glands under their abdomen. And then the older workers can come and kind of harvest this wax from the younger workers. But it's incredibly costly to make. For about one gram of, of wax, it takes about six grams of honey to produce. So it's very, very valuable within the hive.
2: So the bees have glands in their bodies that turn the energy in honey into yeah. wax because wax is, is a hydrocarbon. It is, is, you can burn it, can't you? It's, yeah. it's like oil. Yeah. So how are they turning honey, which is sugar, into oil?
3: with difficulty um, <laughs> yeah um, but, and the the interesting thing too is about the fact that they, they lose this ability as they get older so it's only it's w- within these glands that they can 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 do this and it's only within a certain period of this this um, animal's life cycle which is really cool
2: thanks for that Eleanor Meanwhile Dan we've got this question here for you which comes from Phil
4: Hiya my question is what is the longest someone can hold their breath and can you train yourself to get better at it?
2: Now, I love this question because I always impress my kids because I take them swimming and I can do multiple lengths underwater in the swimming pool. I seem to have a really good tolerance for sustained breath holding or anoxia. I, it might come in handy if I go up Everest, doesn't it? How, how, long, do, how long can you guys hold your breath for? Has anyone oh, tried no. in here or am I, <laughs> I, am I, just, I I've tried. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I
3: don't know. It's a good question.
1: But what's the answer then, Dan? We've got to be slightly careful because there's a lot of information out there which is slightly misleading. So the current world record for holding breath is 11 minutes, 33 seconds. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now, you will see that there are also reports out there of somebody being able to hold it for 24 minutes and 3 seconds. So the caveat on that one is they were allowed to breathe 100% pure oxygen. What, be- yeah. before? Yeah. So what they did was they, they breathed 100% pure oxygen, and, and it's still extraordinary, yeah. and then held their breath for, for 24 minutes and 3 seconds. But if we go with what's recognised in breath-holding circles. <laughs> um, and it's actually part of the free diving community. So if you look at the free diving challenges, it's not just about how deep somebody can dive. It's actually the, the second challenge is having somebody lying just in, in, a, in a swimming pool and holding their breath. And it was a couple of years ago, 2016, it was 11 minutes 33. Actually, there's, there's a couple of real simple parts of this. We have all have what's called the mammalian dive reflex. And it's designed to prevent us from dying very, very quickly in in water. If you hold your breath, your heart rate slows down. And part of that is you start to get a vasoconstriction in the periphery. So what happens is is that that oxygenated blood, rather than going into the limbs, is actually going primarily to the brain. Still a lot going to the heart, but the majority is going to to the brain. And we see this in any mammal. Can I just clarify then, Dan? So by pushing all the blood towards
2: the central organs heart and brain Mm. you're basically stopping the rest of the body having dibs into the oxygen that's in there so those crucial organs heart and brain which are most Mm. oxygen deprivation sensitive they've got longer to have dibs at the oxygen you have got is that is that that why this works
1: so what's happening is if you imagine you've got x amount of oxygen and you reduce the amount of oxygen going to the periphery then that oxygen can be used and the the key variable here is the brain what you don't want to be using is that oxygen in the limbs and and so on and so forth because you're just burning up inverse comes energy the second part and this is why all these records are broken in water is we have what are called the trigeminal nerves which are in the face and actually if you put somebody's face into cold water the trigeminal nerves are actually acted upon and they actually cause an inhibitory effect again on heart rate so through the autonomic nervous system the heart rate then slows down so you get not only the mammalian dive reflex but you get this secondary effect and so when they go for these breath holding records they always do them in fairly cold water can we train for this so i'm going to put a caveat here which is please 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 do not try this at home okay because what we don't want to hear is people passing out and fainting and so on and so forth the first thing to, to recognize is these these individuals have incredibly large lungs a typical lung capacity is four to six liters most breath hold divers have a lung capacity in excess of 10 liters Did they always have that, Dan, or have they got better? You can't increase lung capacity. So this is one of the interesting things when you look at athletes. Athletes can increase everything. You know, heart size can increase, and muscle mass can increase. Lung capacity cannot increase you get what you've given. And so these guys have got this natural genetic endowment, so about 10 litre lung capacity, which is, is fundamentally important. They've actually got increased haemoglobin concentration. They've got greater red blood cell counts. So what they've got is a greater oxygen transport system and, and, and oxygen utilisation system. And a better reserve in the blood in the first place. And you a better got more in the blood. places to store it for it's, longer. Correct, correct. So there's a lot of work that's been done out in places like the, the Karolinska Institute. And what they found is that the key is relaxation. If you imagine that the brain is where the majority of this oxygenated blood is, is going to, the last thing you want to be doing is thinking about what you're having for dinner. Because as soon as you do that, the brain is active. The brain is then going to use that very, very limited store of oxygen. So there was some work that was done actually in the UK a number of years ago where they measured EEG patterns in breath hold divers. And what they were looking at was when they got them to do just a breath hold they were looking at the EEG patterns and they found that the best this breath... This is hold- the brainwave activity. This is the brainwave activity. And what they found in the best breath-hold dives was that the brainwave activity just... It was almost like watching somebody shut a computer down. These signals just started to decrease. And the guys that were the new to breath hold diving actually had very active brains. So the first thing is relaxation. They talk about doing what's called progressive muscle relaxation, which is a a technique that's used to prevent things like anxiety, which is the idea that you go through tensing the feet first and relaxing the feet, then the calves, then the quadriceps, and you do this across the whole body to put yourself in a state of relaxation. The second thing that you have to do is you have to, or the, the best athletes do, is what's called lung packing, whereby you basically overpack the lung, with air most of us really don't actually use our lungs to their full capacity and lung packing is a technique whereby you use the glottis to in essence get more air into the lungs and inflate the lungs and inflate the lungs inflate the lungs lungs. there is a downside to this which is why i was saying please don't try this at home which is that actually this starts then cause decreases in carbon dioxide concentration and so the net result is that people just start to pass out what they showed in, in a number of studies is that you can take people who can hold their breath. Typically, most people can hold their breath for about a minute, minute and a half. And actually, if you go through this progressive muscle relaxation and even do a very basic form of lung packing, most people will be able to get to four minutes, four and a half minutes.
2: I know you said don't try it at home. Next time I'm in the bath, I will so <laughs> so give it a go. Well, thanks for that really comprehensive account, Dan. That was brilliant. Now, Bobby, Matt has been in touch on Twitter and says, can you share your views on the future of maths in football and sport? Can processing data be a real... A competitive advantage for teams and what techniques might they use what might they learn
4: it's a good question because in america a film came out a few years ago called moneyball and it showed how they used something called saber metrics where they looked at players that were undervalued compared to what the market rated them so it, it transformed baseball so actually every team in baseball started using this to the point where actually it lost its competitive advantage what we've seen in football is that there's a bit of resistance because sometimes you see, like I play a lot of football, managers, coaches saying, oh, it's all about the gut feeling, you Now you can tell if the player's good or not. But there are also other teams at like Brentford Football Club, they use a lot of data and metrics. They actually get data scientists in. And I think it's one where for young players, perhaps you can use it for like how many like kilometres they're running in a game and the amount of passes. Uh, and it's definitely helpful, but I think football and sport... It, it's still where there are other things like guts and honesty, integrity, someone wanting like David Beckham in 2001 running the extra, the yard because he really wanted something where I think it, it's hard to metricize sport
2: like football. And there's a huge human factor. as is that? is that what you were going to say?
1: Well, I was, I was partly, but I was going to say actually a lot of sports are really are buying into this. I mean, we know, for example, now rugby uses this kind of approach it came from American football. I mean, it is data, data driven. And now what? They're using is GPS monitoring, so live GPS monitoring, and you have these guys who are performance analysts. It's not just about the physicality; they're starting to now get into trying to look at. And I, and Bobby, will know this, the, the terminology better than I do, but they're starting to do this this kind of analysis about movement patterns. So the way in which these these individuals swarm to the point now they've looked at this in Tour de France cyclists. So the Australian Institute of Sport have been looking at this. It's the same kind of research they've been doing on when you watch these swarms of birds and they've been taking that same approach to say well actually the peloton in the tour de france will swarm in this kind of way and when it swarms in this kind of way we know these things start to happen so it's being used in multiple different ways in different sports and bobby's point's right i mean there are certain sports which i think are slightly reticent about using this and still perhaps go with the older the gut feeling approach but this kind of performance analysis is really pretty much embedded. I mean, dare I say, even teams like Cambridge United are, <laughs> are using this, this approach because actually it gives you enormous information. I mean, very briefly, I was out in Brazil recently and I was at two of the big teams in Brazil. And they were showing me how they're using this, this performance analysis data to now be able to work out and say to the manager, right, based upon this data that we're getting, this player is now at a risk of injury. And so what they've been able to do is then take that data and then link that to metrics that they've got in terms of measures, actual measures of injury. And it ties up really nicely so they can look at this on-field data and say, right, based upon this data, you need to pull this player out of the game. And Cruzeiro, which is one of the big clubs in Brazil, have, have been using this and it's, it's proved to be really quite successful. Bobby?
4: I think sports where they're individuals, let's say running or swimming, I think you can use data because then you can work on individual performance. But when there's like multiple factors, it becomes very complicated. Like I think football, even rugby, I think the more there are multiple variables, I think the more difficult it is to use computer science to help predict
3: do you think this is having any impact on um, mental health of the players? You know, I can imagine if you're being monitored like that, it would certainly make me feel uncomfortable. It's,
1: I, mean, I mean, that's a fascinating question, isn't it? And, 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 and I think the mental health part is is huge in sport, and I don't think we've ever really, we have never looked at that kind of association between this kind of these metrics. But there is so much monitoring going on now with players. everyone says
2: this, don't they? That um, you know they feel they're in a surveillance society, mm-hmm. and it does yeah. does have an
1: impact. Yeah. Maybe it might improve performance. Well, we're doing it because we think that it helps with performance. I mean, I know you know British Cycling have been using this for years and years and years.
2: There we're going to have to leave it. Thanks very much for listening and thank you for sending in your questions. Thanks also to our panel, who are Fran Day, Bobby Siegel, Eleanor Drinkwater and Dan Gordon. Katie Haler put the programme together. Join us next time when we're going to be talking ciphers, spycraft and subterfuge because we're delving into the world of code breaking. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.